Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the particulars of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have some news stories including Audi's sporty S4 and S5, a couple of upgraded models from Toyota, Jaguar teaches driverless cars how to reduce motion sickness and some American research that driver assistance systems may not be as good as you think. We spent a couple of days driving some new Audis through the picturesque areas near and up in the highlands south of Sydney. There are two interviews from this experience. Our resident mechanical engineer, Fred Brain, gives his driving impressions of the Audi All-Road and the A5s. And testing cars is not just about their features and performance. It's about how well you travel and what you can see when you get to a destination. We talk to Betty Villey about her historical research in Picton. You can find more information about our program and what we do at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you might go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So let's get the program rolling. First, the news. While the latest Audi A4 and A5 mid-sized passenger cars now only come with four-cylinder engines, Audi has not lost sight of high performance. This week they announced the latest sports versions of these cars, the S4 and the S5. All models have a 3-litre turbocharged V6 engine with 260 kilowatts and up to 500 newton metres of torque. They get the power to the ground through an 8-speed triptonic transmission and quattro permanent all-wheel drive. Acceleration to 100 kilometres an hour is as low as 4.7 seconds. Fuel consumption is 8.6 litres per 100 kilometres for the S4 sedan. The sedan starts at just under $100,000 to which you add 2500 to get the wagon. The S5 Sportsback and Coupe are just under $107,000. Add a further $13,500 for the convertible. To all prices, you have to add on-road costs. In the large SUV class, Toyota has three vehicles. The Prado is the big seller in the category and is made to be taken off-road. Second place is the Toyota Kluger, which is made more for the family school run. The third Toyota is their Fortuna, which is 11th in the category. It is made for off-road at a more competitive price. They have just upgraded the Fortuna, still with a four-cylinder, 2.8-litre turbocharged diesel, but with increased power and torque, lifting maximum outputs to 150 kilowatts and 500 newton metres. They have also kept the six-speed automatic transmission, but cut fuel consumption by nearly 12% on the official combined cycle. It's now 7.6 litres per 100 kilometres. The percentage improvement is even better on the urban cycle. Prices range from $49,000 to $61,400 plus on-road costs. The Toyota Hilux Utility is the best-selling vehicle in Australia and Toyota is about to release its 8th generation of the vehicle, which will come with 27 variants with a payload of at least one tonne. 
they have announced the specifications and prices for their Workmate SR and SR5, which have the single cab with a large tray at the back. There are three four-cylinder engines, but they have focused on the 2.8-litre diesel that has been improved and is also being used in their new Fortuna SUV. The other engines are a 2.4-litre four-cylinder diesel and a 2.7-litre four-cylinder petrol engine. The Hilux braked towing capacity is now 3.5 tonnes for all 4x4 variants, while the 4x2 diesel variants are now rated at 2.8 tonnes. Prices start at $23,590 plus on-road costs. Jaguar Land Rover is developing software that will reduce motion sickness when a car is being driven autonomously. They quote a study that concluded that motion sickness affects more than 70% of people, but this research was done in 1975. During the first phase of their project, a personalised wellness score was developed, which, they say, could reduce the impact of motion sickness by up to 60%. Their intelligent software, based on over 32 kilometres of real-world and virtually simulated tests, adjusts acceleration, braking and lane positioning to avoid inducing nausea. Jaguar says that in the post-COVID-19 world, customer expectations of private transport are changing and the focus will be on safe, clean mobility. Their systems will include a driver condition monitor and antimicrobial wireless device charging. In addition, features such as cooling seats, ambient lighting and multiple seat configurations are proven to significantly reduce the likelihood of motion sickness. Research by the American Automobile Association has found that vehicles equipped with active driving assistance systems experience some type of issue every 13 kilometres on average. The AAA tested the functionality of active driving assistance systems in real-world conditions and in a closed course setting. On public roadways, nearly three-quarters of errors involved lane departure assistance or erratic lane positioning, while AAA's closed-course testing found that, while the systems performed mostly as expected, they were particularly challenged when approaching a simulated disabled vehicle. When encountering this test scenario, a collision occurred 66% of the time, and the average impact speed was 40 kilometres an hour. Our experience is that the systems are getting better, but whether it has detected the situation properly or not, and stops assisting you, is usually only indicated through small systems on the dashboard that you have to be looking at directly to see. And that has been the news. 67% of Audis sold so far this year in Australia are SUVs, but they haven't given up on their passenger cars. Audi has released an upgrade of its A4 sedan and Avant, that's their word for a station wagon, their A4 all-road, which is a bit of an adventure vehicle without being a real rugged four-wheel drive, and of course their more elegant A5s. There's a sportsback, four-door car, a coupe and a convertible. Now, Audi has defined this upgrade as a refreshment, but there are some significant changes in choice, features, safety, technology, and indeed looks. They are in the medium-sized prestige passenger car category, currently dominated by the BMW 3 Series and the Mercedes C-Class. Now, the medium car market, that's all of them, of all prices, is down 26% so far this year. 
the prestige part of the market had a good month in June, the end of the financial year, but overall they are struggling as well. Audi thinks that this refreshment will help. Overdrive's resident mechanical engineer is Fred Brain, who drove the all-road and some A5s. G'day, Fred. Hi. Let's talk about the all-road first. It's built like a station wagon, but it's a little bit taller and a bit made for a little bit more for off-road. Do you think the looks look flashy? They don't stand out that much, to my mind, the looks of it. I mean, it's pleasantly styled, but it's not something that's radically styled, which might be intentional on the part of Audi anyway. It's got the grill in the front, has vertical slats, so it doesn't make it look as low and wide as a sedan and makes it look a little bit more SUV. It's got a wider track, it's 46 millimetres higher ground clearance than the sedan. It's got roof rails and rear sunshade and so on. We drove the one with the 45 TFSI four-cylinder turbo engine. That was a bit perky. How did you find it drove? It drove quite well. I suppose I should say it drove really well. It's very difficult to actually get an idea of how hard they go when you're limited by the speed limits, unfortunately. I mean, I never feel a competent car at doing doing what it's intended to do. And when you look at the speedo that goes up to 300 kilometres an hour, you think, well, it's actually got a fair bit of performance available there, but way more than what, uh, what one could use on the road. In terms of drivability, I mean, you get the feeling it does everything competently. Brakes are good and those sorts of things. It it sits well on the road. In fact, it has slightly higher profile tyres than the sedans. They're not chunky to go off-road, but I've got to say, those slightly higher profile tyres, I don't mind because it makes travelling down the highway not noisy or rough. It's very sedan-like. Did you find that in its driving? For sure, yeah. Given I'm used to driving a four-wheel drive, a Pajero, um, I mean, this one felt more like a sedan than than even an SUV because you, the interior of it is actually very sedan-like. And even though it's a couple of inches higher off the ground, you don't actually notice that when you're driving it anyway. It's uh, certainly a station wagon that's grown up a little rather than a four-wheel drive that has been toned down. Yes, yeah, yeah. Not not having driven any of their SUVs, um, I mean, it's hard to draw a comparison there, but I suspect hopping in those, I'd get the impression I was sitting way higher up than in the all-road. Yes. You don't get that sit-tall feeling that you might get with an SUV. It's got a, a lot of technology, 360-degree camera, cruise control, but it's it's not adaptive. I find that a little disappointing. It's got parking systems and certain efficiencies. It's got good headlights, LED headlights, uh, which dip and high beam and they position and there's an all-weather light and so on. It's priced from $70,000. Now, it's got two engines. One of them is a diesel. And that's what they call the 40TDI. You didn't drive it. I did. I thought it lacked the sharpness of the petrol turbocharged engine. But that uh, that one costs a bit more. And that's up around the $73,000 plus on-road costs. It's uh, not cheap motoring. No, you're certainly paying a few dollars for it. Um, so you'd expect, expect the car to be fairly competent at doing everything it does, wouldn't you? Heads-up display, did you like that? Being able to see your speed and, of course, your directions. 
on the windscreen. Certainly the speed, given the speedo, because it actually reads to 300, the numbers on it are very, very small. Being sort of not, not vision impaired, but being of an age where uh, reading glasses are necessary, <laughs> it makes it very hard to read, uh, read speedos at times when they have so many numbers around in a circle. So having the, uh, having the speed showing up on the windscreen was actually really beneficial, I must say. In digital form, which I like, yes. 5.2 litres per 100 fuel consumption for the diesel, 7.1 litres per 100k for the petrol, the 45 TSI petrol engine. Fred, we also had a go of the A5. Now, you can get this in a four-door. It's got much more of a fastback look, but even there's a two-door coupe. Something close to your heart. Is this the Monaro of the modern day? Star Wars. It's probably not that far different to the latter-day Monaro that uh, came out, what, 20-odd years ago now. That's a fairly subtly styled car. That was the, the new Monaro, yes. Yeah, the new Monaro. Uh, I suppose it is a variation that the coupe that they've done is, in fact, the uh, virtually a, or basically a two-door version of the sedan. So that's how the Monaro, Monaro started life back in the uh, late 60s and also the latter-day one, where it was a variation on the sedan. So I suppose in that respect, you get you, you become somewhat limited in how wild you make a coupe look. I think this wants to look elegant. I don't think it wants to look testosterone. Yeah, well, and it probably achieves that in reality. You can get two engines with it, both a four-cylinder petrol turbo engines. One's tuned to 140 kilowatts, the 40 TFSI and the other one is the same as in the all road we tested the 45 TFSI a 2 litre petrol engine 183 kilowatts but in the style of the Monaro they're also announcing their S5 which is the real hot version you can get it 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 has a six cylinder engine and pumps out 260 kilowatts That'd give your Monaro a run for the money, wouldn't it? <laughs> I suspect so, yes. <laughs> might, have, might eclipse it somewhat. That's nearly, what's that, 350 horsepower or more? I'm, I'm doing a mental calculation. So that's uh, as much as the Monaro was originally rated at. Yeah, they might have done better in tuning for Bathurst to it. The ratings on the old Monaro, they were all... Uh... American ratings, which are, tended to be a little bit optimistic in terms of what reality was, I suspect. <laughs> we uh, took it to Picton and we met a lady there. She was rather interesting. I was just asking about some local heritage and that. She liked the look of it, but she misunderstood or wasn't sure what brand it was. Do you remember her comment? That's where the, the Audis, they're not radically styled. They, the, this model anyway, the A5, the sedan and the coupe, so they kind of blend into the crowd a bit. It does look good, but she did think it was a Kia Stinger. We'll tell Kia that, but we might not mention it to Audi. <laughs> I think in credit to that, it's that the Stinger is a good-looking car as well. I think they're a little different in terms of sophistication and that, but the Stinger is still a very, very good car she actually owned a very old holden yeah yeah that's right now, her husband was really into holdens in a big way to the point where he uh, had a holden sign painted on the driveway of their house <laughs> <laughs> i haven't done that 
<laughs> I don't think Pamela would necessarily support you as be as being as supportive as she was. She she well, what's called hers is an old EJ, beautifully re- restored. We didn't see it, but we saw pictures of it. An early model Commodore, which actually which actually have become quite collectible these days anyway. Um, plus the EJ, and she was saying she actually had a uh, a two door, I think an LJ Tirana in her younger days, which she still wishes she had. (laughs) (laughs) Probably worth a degree or two. We will talk to Kev, the husband. He's uh, more than happy, I think, to have a chat. Actually, he mentioned quite a few times he was more than happy to come on a launch drive as well, but I'm not sure we can quite organise that. It was an interesting time. I enjoyed Picton for that. Just uh, in finishing the uh, A5s, if you start with a sports pack, that's the, basically the four-door car with the, the 140 kilowatts, that's $72,000 around that. And you pay another, what's that, eight grand more for the hotter engine. Now, I think that also does include the fact that you go up to all-wheel drive as well. Now, that's the same same prices for the coupe, which I think is a nicer looking car, but you pay $13,500 more for the Cabrio, Cabu, the convertible. <laughs> Cabriolet. Cabriolet, yeah, that's right. And so that means the top of the range Cabriolet is $93,400 plus on road. So it'll be costing you a hundred grand or more, a bit more than the Monaro. Not that yeah. you ever had a convertible one of them. Monaros are worth more than that these days, the early ones, <laughs> a good one, <laughs> having said that. <laughs> it's a valid point that they certainly have. It's a different time and, and different that. Well, I'm going to talk a little bit just after this about uh, Picton, but for the moment, Fred, lovely to talk to you. I do appreciate your time. Yeah, likewise. No, no, I appreciate the opportunity to have a have a drive and go on the launch of them. You are, of course, my video photographer. <laughs> that's right, of course. Yeah, that's right. I remember. must add that to my qualification list. <laughs> All right, mate. Catch you up. <laughs> okay. And that was Fred Brain, our mechanical engineer here on Overdrive. Let's, uh, after the break, take a little talk about one of the very nice historical features we saw in Picton while we were there. This is Overdrive across Australia. Testing cars is not just about their features and their performance. It's about how well you can travel in them and what you can do when you get to a destination. On a trip to the Highlands for a launch of some new Audis, we passed through Picton. We sat in a park just near St Mark's Anglican Church and Pioneer Cemetery. One of the tombstones hints at the tragedy of Janet Robson's life, born in Scotland and died in Australia in 1903, aged just 31. It would be nice to know some more details. Well, perhaps not of her, but beside 12 graves, there were little plaques with a QR reader symbol on each, one individually. You point your phone at it and you can hear a short recording of some historical details of the person or persons buried there. Now, the stories behind these 12 graves have been researched, compiled and written by Elizabeth Villey, known to everyone as Betty. Good day, Betty. Hello, David. How are you? I'm very well. Loved your work. Oh, that's good. That's very nice. It's always lovely to hear 
somebody complimenting on uh, what you do because a lot of effort goes into writing and to researching. Have you always had an interest in history? Yes, ever since I've been a child, my parents were interested in history and so parts, some of my extended family. And uh, I, I did a tour we had for History Week a couple of years ago and uh, we decided to do a cemetery tour because the topic put out by the uh, history people was life and death. So uh, we thought, well, uh, cemeteries are appropriate. So uh, we came and asked the minister, was it okay, you know, to do the cemetery tour? And he said, yes, no problems at all. And uh, that was Ben Boardman. He's the minister for the Church of England, St. Mark's. And uh, uh, from that, he asked me, would, he had this idea of doing the uh, little plaques. So uh, I did the research on those people, and he put it together. Can we start with one example? I looked, there was an unusual headstone with a tree trunk and lopped branches. Mary Horton and her son, Claude Stafford. Do you remember those details? Yes, absolutely. It was it was quite fascinating because it was very hard to read what was going on, but uh, a little bit of spit and polish and we got through. Uh, then we did some research on a, a number of our places, trove to a certain point. But what was interesting about, about that one, well, firstly, the cut-off tree truck indicates that the person has died before their time. You know, that's the end of life, so the tree can't grow any further. It's usually for young people. And, of course, the uh, the young boy, uh, he was killed in a mine accident at Mount Kembla. And uh, it was a horrific accident. And uh, they used to have a museum down at Mount Kembla. He was one of the people. And uh, what was horrifying, too, about it was the number of boys. There was about 30 boys who were down there as apprentices and one thing and another. And uh, they had this fast explosion. It was absolutely horrific. Uh, anybody can read about it. It's It's well documented. He was one of them, but he's not, he's not buried there. His mother is buried there. He's buried at Mount Kebler. He's buried at the Church of England Cemetery. It's quite a beautiful headstone he has. She married her first husband, but I believe he died when Claude was only five. Yes, that's right, yes, yes. And then his mother died when he was 12. Then when he was 18, he died in the mine in 1902 at Mount Kembla. Three cousins along with 92 other men and boys. A lot of the family lived down at Mount Kembla. But when you go down to Mount Kembla and you have a look, it's really really very tragic, the, the sites there that are left. And you'll see that multiple families lost a lot of people in their one family. Because you know what mining communities are like. You have, uh, uh, you know, that, that's the whole community relies upon the mine for everything. When I was researching it, because I did Mount Kembla mines a number of years ago, it, it was quite horrific how the company... I wouldn't uh, accept uh, responsibility. The men, they had uh, they had to buy their own equipment. And in those days, a lot of the men just had a candle on their head, whereas uh, the mine company would refuse to buy them and, and supply them with the, uh, I think it's called the Davy helmet, which has got a concealed candle inside glass. If they wanted one of those, they had to buy it for themselves, but their wages were so low they couldn't afford it. And uh, the company, in their own turn, uh, when the men died, they uh, finally coughed up $12 per person for the funeral, but they gave no compensation or anything to the widows. All the money that the widows received and the, and the children was raised by public subscription and generosity. You see a gravestone and you see someone who died young and you think that's a tragedy, yet what you've brought out there is the whole social condition at the time. Absolutely. It was absolutely and, and this was the time when the unions were getting on their feet, and they were doing a lot of they they had had a lot of improvements, 
but at the still time, at the same time, they were still against a very, very wealthy company, and uh, you know the um, poor wages. Uh, yes, it is. It's a, it's a social. It's a social history. And I think then that this way of at least bringing out some of those facts is a fantastic idea that it takes the typical graveyard and adds a new dimension to it. Do you plan to do more? I think Ben has got some ideas to, to do a few more, but uh, I'm not sure what he's doing at the moment, but uh, I, I'm quite sure that uh, he will, if he's got it in his mind, and it's been very successful, a lot of people have commented upon it, and uh, I'm, I'm quite sure he will get around to it eventually, yes. And uh, what ones we do, well, I have no idea at this stage. I sort of selected a random lot, because I, I wanted a, a, a cross-section of the community. I mean, I could have just picked the people who went to church and, uh, you know, were benefactors of the church. But I wanted a, I wanted a, 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 I wanted a complex picture of what the district was like. So, you know, we've got uh, very successful people in there. We've got poor people and uh, we've got those uh, children all dying of uh, diphtheria and such. And, uh, and even the Spanish flu, there's a woman there who died of the Spanish flu. And uh, each uh, little picture was just a, a couple of minutes or so of, of men speaking. You know, it was no point to go, going. I'm a, I've got, I'm a shocker for detail. I go into detail and detail. I go on and on about it. You know, drive people mad, including myself. But it was, it wasn't satisfactory for that. So I had to compress the information. Where did you get your information from? Was it easy to find their stories? Well, some of it was. Uh, a lot of it. About 20 years ago, the Pictet Historical Society, I put out a little book there on the Mark's Churchyard, and we did a lot of them there. But the historical societies here have got a lot of information. They've got a lot of personal information about different people, because a lot of these people in that gravestone were, were people that were well known, and there was also the newspaper a lot of information about them. And, uh, you know, Trove, the, yes, that's right, I did tro use Trove a little bit, but not too much. But yes, there was a lot of information about them in various sources. Trove helps document past newspapers and things, and I think it's getting them digitised so you can search through those. It still takes a lot of dedication. And also it's got a lot of limitations. The best way of research is uh, when I wrote a book a number of years ago on the old Razorback Road, there was no Trove. And I went into the, into the Mitchell, into the State Library, and I sat there for hours and hours scanning the newspapers, reading the whole page. And that's the way to do it because you pick up all sorts of wonderful information. With Trove, you've got a key in the right word and you only get that article that you've keyed in for. See, looking at the whole paper gives you a broader perception of the life and times. Oh, absolutely. It's got, you know, it's got adverts, it's got all sorts of things on it. You know, that, and, uh, the things that you weren't really looking for, but they all add up to that picture. They all add up to something that's, uh, that makes a story. I like reading a biography that is the life and times of somebody, not just detail of what they've done. Yes, yes, I, yes. I, 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 I add into most of my writing. I add up. I add in into uh, the times. I add up, you know, how that people, the social history of the area. Yeah, yes. That's how, that's how I work. See, quite often we get one data statistic we misunderstand and that's the average age of people and we think that that meant everyone died younger, yet as you reflected here, it's quite often infant mortality that really has dragged down the average age. That's right, yes, they've, they've included it, uh, yes, uh, I had a lot of problems with that for a long time and, and uh, yes, and especially in the early times, you know, so many babies, so many children died one stage there in the middle 19th century 
one in five children never got past their first birthday. That's why we have such a celebration of, birth, of the first birthday. Uh, Betty, I love your work. I really appreciate your work. And I'd, I'd be interested, uh, maybe at some later stage, we might talk about the Razorback Road because I went home via the Razorback and I remember as a, a young lad driving my Morris Minor over the Razorback. You went on the highway. You didn't go on the original road. <laughs> Don't tell me it was worse. <laughs> it's still there. You can drive on it. Oh. When, when I speak with you, I'll have, to, I'll have to tell you how to get there. All right. That's a deal. It's not difficult at all. Yeah. For the moment, thank you very much for your time. That's okay. It's a pleasure, David, and good luck with it all. And that's Elizabeth Villey, who is the researcher behind the lovely little vignettes about 12 grave sites on the St Mark's Anglican Church and Pioneer Cemetery in Picton, which you can readily get by simply pointing your phone at them and letting your QR reader go straight to that sound file. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Betty Villy and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information and other stories, go to drivenmedia.com.au. All previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.